What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This episode is supported by one of the most awesome companies in the Bitcoin space, who I'd like to thank, CoinKite. More of a Bitcoin geek workshop than a typical company, the crew of hardcore Bitcoiners at CoinKite imagine the products they want to exist in order to interact with and store Bitcoin securely, and then they just go ahead and build them. This has led to them becoming one of the most highly regarded brands in the Bitcoin space, largely due to the cold card hardware wallet, which is a wildly popular self-custody solution amongst many experienced Bitcoiners. The most recent version of this product, the MK4, is out now with several new features designed to increase ease of use, introduce even more security features for multiple attack vectors, and make the degree of security which ColdCard offers more robust than ever. Thankfully, these guys also like to have some fun and tinker with some not-so-serious products, which has resulted in a personal industry favorite of mine, the Block Clock Mini. Whether you've begun orienting your life around block time, need to check an open dime balance, want to keep an eye on the Bitcoin exchange rate, or just get a kick out of watching Moscow time slowly trend towards zero, the Block Lock Mini has become a favored piece of Bitcoin paraphernalia and an increasingly less subtle way of telling the world that you're here for hyper-Bitcoinization. To learn more about all their awesome products and stay up to date on what they're working on, visit coinkite.com. Let's do it. All right. We should be... Live, I think. Let me check. There we go. Yeah. Seb, what's up, brother? Ah, things are good. It's a nice early morning here. I think you're a few hours ahead. Yeah, it's uh, it's 11 a.m. for me. So, wait, and so where nice... about, about you base, John? I've been uh, keeping that to myself for now, but I'm in the sure. uh, I'm in Eastern time. So, mm-hmm. um, and I'm in like uh, south america caribbean area so i had a nice run on the beach and a nice swim in the water this morning so ready to go and have a good conversation about uh well with you and we'll see we'll see we'll see where that takes us but uh for both my uh benefit and maybe people listening uh any background that you're open to sharing that would be great to uh get this conversation started oh for sure so long story short my background is I'm a mountain bike instructor. I've been a professional mountain bike instructor for most of my life. And um, I would say I've always had a fascination with distilling these complex biomechanical ideas down into their simplest form and then trying to teach that. And I've, I've loved mountain bike instructing, but I, I struggled with the fact that it's just you're, you're helping an individual. And I think that I've always wanted to help more than an individual and try and do a bigger part for humanity as, as altruistic as that sounds and as uh, audacious as that sounds. And I think that where that took me is I've always found an interest in finance and kind of how the world works and trying to piece together this puzzle. And I've been interested in options and futures and the markets for 10, 10 to 15 years now. And that led me down a path of, well, there's something wrong. And there's, there's, what, what is wrong in our society right now that is causing wealth inequality when we're meant to be seeing prosperity? Why are we seeing like polarization? Why are we seeing all of this stuff kind of come to a head? And that kind of gets you to dig into money. And then that's what led me to Bitcoin. I, I suddenly realized, you know what, when you start to understand these, these bigger issues that we're facing in the economy right now, then you start to realize, hey, this is where that piece Bitcoin that originally I thought was a Ponzi, this is where that fits in. And so a few years ago, I kind of discovered Bitcoin and went deep down the rabbit hole. And then two years ago, quit my job and I've just been focused on Bitcoin since then. And uh, I just started a uh, platform a little while back with Greg Foss and a few others. And we uh, write educational content for the wage earner and just try to distill down these complex subjects and macro and, and Bitcoin fundamentals and really distill them down for the average person because they're the, they're the ones that need it most. And uh if we want to have a good go at trying to 
help the world kind of push forward into prosperity, then I think we've really got to allow the average wage earner access to this kind of information. Totally. And so that's called Looking Glass EDU, right? What, how did that come together with FOSS and uh, the other contributors or partners? For sure. So that came together. Basically, I, I would say after the pandemic, I went deep down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And that's when I was like, man, how can I contribute? And I decided to start writing. And writing has definitely never been, to be 100% honest, it's never been my forte. And when I was about 12, I dropped out of English in school. Uh, and 14, I left school because I was just like, I th- this isn't for me. Like, what's for me is, is following the, these things that drive me and the things that get me into my flow state. And, and to me, that was mountain biking. And uh, so at the start of the pandemic, kind of going back into writing was really interesting. And Grammarly, I would not be here if it wasn't for Grammarly Pro. I think that's done a lot of my editing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I started writing. Greg read one of my pieces and I was humbled at the time and uh, he reshared it. And he kind of, Greg's very much like a magnet. He, he very much like connects a lot of people. So he introduced me to another guy called Daz, Daz uh, B, and another guy, um, another guy called uh, Jason. And then, uh, and one more, Max, who kind of works for Saferdeen. And together we kind of sat down quite a few times over the last year and kind of put together, how can we educate and make an impact? And that's very much where we came with the idea, you know what, we want to target the wage earner and try and steer uh, well, going back, backstepping, I recognize that we're such an amazing community and we've got so many people of like-minded individuals that want to help and want to give back. And, but we're limited in terms of our resources as a community, as a Bitcoin community. And so therefore it's really important to be able to make sure that we're not just having too much overlapping and just kind of like wasting our resources or at least having a lot of redundancy in the system. And so I think that's where we've got some amazing content by Gigi and Michael Saylor and, um, and breed love when we want to talk about more of the philosophical side of things, the, the, the deeper stuff. Uh, and then we also have like the Sharmory guys when it comes to kids books or kids engagement. And, and that's where we recognize there's not a ton that speaks to actually the people that need it most, the people, the, the kind of the jargon free, concise, clean content uh, for the average wage earner. And so that's where we wanted to try and really focus our energy on kind of that, that crowd. And uh, I, I believe we've targeted it pretty well and we're, we're pumped to see it. And it's uh we're, we're so blown away with the response and yeah. That's awesome. And so two questions, is it all free content? And the second one is how do you target that group of people or that demographic? Like, you know, by what means do you not only like, not only in like the, the subject matter and the style mm-hmm. of the content, but how do you actually get it to those people? hundred percent. So those are, those are great questions. And, you know, I would say, when it comes to our actual content style, the when, when we initially went into this, we didn't really know what to expect. <clears throat> so we ended up creating a self-paced online course uh, that basically goes through um, our macro scene. And the reason why we focused on macro rather than Bitcoin to start, it mentions Bitcoin in there, is that we recognize that Bitcoin is a point of contention for a lot of people and it brings up a lot of emotional charge. And so because Bitcoin brings up a lot of this emotional charge when you try and mention it at a barbecue or mention it to your friend or mention it to those people that actually need it most, we recognize that if you can actually teach people about uh, our monetary system and a lot of the issues and the byproducts around our monetary system and at the same time kind of introduce, okay, well, what is, what is money? Is money the store of battery? Is it a store of time and energy? Like why do we need money in an economy? Uh, when you start to talk about this kind of stuff and you go through the evolution of money from barter to commodities to uh, like 
precious metals, metal-backed paper, all of these kind of things. When you start going through the evolution of money, what is money? What are the issues we're facing around money? Then people can start to recognize, uh, okay, we do have an issue. And a lot of the times that goes back to scarcity and centralization. And that's where Bitcoin really starts to be that kind of orange orange light on, on the hillside. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of how we approach the actual course structure. And that's our self-paced course. But from there, we've just been blown away because since releasing this course about three months ago around the Bitcoin conference, we've just had an absolute influx of people reaching out and just being like, you know what, I'm a teacher. I want this in the hands of schools. I want to be able to teach my students this. And uh, so we've been converting the course right now into curriculum content because uh, we realize the importance of um, needing to get this education into the hands of those that actually don't know we have an issue and don't know the questions to ask. Because there's, there's going to be many people that, okay, yeah, I've dug down the rabbit hole a little bit, or I have an understanding of finance and I realize there's an issue. How can we uh, create a solution for this? And they're going to start searching for things. And that's where they're going to come across these self-paced courses. But if you can get into the schooling system and you can start shaping people's minds as they're going through their educational journey, and you can start to teach them the importance of sound money, that's where we can really start to make a difference, I think, for the next generation of, of individuals that are going to kind of lead this world. Because I think that our central banks and our, uh, our central banks and our governments have, I would argue, have been quite fiscally irresponsible over the last quite a while. And so if we can kind of plant the seed and talk about sound money and start to introduce Bitcoin and, and, and the benefits of Bitcoin, I think that that's immense. I think it's absolutely immense. And so we're working on turning our macro course into a, uh, into a school curriculum at the moment, a 21, 21 course school curriculum that can be taught and cut down. It can be, it's very malleable. We're then working on a secondary course, which is a Bitcoin fundamentals course. It goes into, well, how does Bitcoin actually work? All of its fundamentals, it's uh, the, the miners, the cryptography behind it, um, those kind of things. And then it goes into the FUD side of things and breaks down, well, why may the news, when it's hammering Bitcoin about energy or price volatility, or that it is, has no intrinsic value, why might, the, might those arguments not necessarily be very factual or accurate? And then the final course that we're going to tie all of this together is a financial literacy course, because we recognize that if we're trying to target the wage earner, and we're trying to target these countries that need it most, which are at many times the developing countries, then if these guys understand, okay, the importance of Bitcoin, and now they understand the macroeconomy and the issues we're facing, well, now they need to have the skills to be able to understand the importance of saving compound interest, trying to treat yourself as a bit of a business and making sure that your incomings exceed your outgoings and that you're able to uh, focus on, say, passive income and things like that so that we can help to uh, kind of increase prosperity. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so... I, I didn't catch. I, maybe I missed it, but is this all freely oh, free. available? These are, or these are some of them are paid and some of them are free. Yeah. So I sorry, I, I sort of highlighted that. So um, yeah, I would I, I would just say like we aren't a non-profit. We're definitely a for-profit. But the reason why we focused on the for-profit is because any pro like any income or revenue that we can get just allows us to drive that back into the product which allows us to ensure that we can create an even more beneficial product. And so at the moment, our goal is to make sure that all of our content is free to the end user. And we're going to look at ways of potentially monetizing through other means. And that can be right. whether that's through advertisement, whether that's through uh, some of these apps for sharing streaming sats, things like that. We're going to figure out ways that we can monetize that doesn't impact the educational journey of the end user. Because although a lot of us in the Bitcoin community are capitalists at heart, 
we also recognize this kind of paradox where it's just like, well, if we want to educate people about Bitcoin, if we're monetizing this, then the countries that need it most, all of these developing nations, they're, they're kind of, they're pushed out. There's a barrier for them. And so mm. we would just want to make sure that high quality education is available to these individuals that need it most. Yeah, makes sense. Did you see, um, it was only like, it might've been this week or maybe it was last week. Um, a group of people, I know the Ibex guys are involved. I don't know who was fully behind it, but down in El Salvador, they <laughs> developed this curriculum to be integrated into the public schools. And I think this was the first pilot. And if it goes well, they're going to roll it out to more. And the exam, the final exam was bringing down a bunch of, of Bitcoin people from all over the world to one-on-one -on -one test the students. And part of the test was like, you know, recovering a wallet and loading a wallet and sending funds and all this kind of backing up, you know, your seed and all this stuff. And it was so cool, um, you know, to see this take place and that this was part of the education. And, you know, e education has been something I've always been one super critical of and, you know, super passionate about. And I just like I always love to think about. In fact, I keep like a running uh, note of all the different potential curriculums in the future that would be cool to see integrated into like a, you know, a, a young person's initial education. Mm -hmm. And you just think like, think about our education. You know, we, we came out, most of us came out, even if you went to like a private or like, you know, unconventional school. I mean, that's a bit different, of course, but most of us came out of like an industrial educational system, right? Like very, uh, similar curriculum, not very much divergence, very kind of narrow focus on a lot of things, not very applicable to, um, you know, uh, or a lot of irrelevant education, mm -hmm. not customized for different preferences and different proclivities and different, you know, natural talents and that kind of stuff. And I just can't wait to see in a Bitcoin world, I think there's going to be a lot more customization. There's also going to be a broader spectrum of educations available to people and it's going to be a much better fit between someone's natural talents and proclivities and their ambitions and the education that they they're able to access and uh you know if if we're at all i mean you know you and i probably are nothing special but at least we're not completely regarded you know like at least we came out and we're somewhat well-adjusted individuals in this crazy world that we're in i can't mm -hmm. wait to like if you give people in you know on a bitcoin standard you give these people not only that, you know, social and cultural stability and not only that familial and financial stability that I think is fostered through a Bitcoin standard, but also an education that is far more robust. I mean, it's really exciting to think of what type of people that will produce and what they'll go on to you know, do in the world. Absolutely, 100%. And I think that's where people don't recognize that a lot of our genius in the world comes from people that the genius itself, I believe that we have a genius in, inside of every single one of us. It's just rather than that genius being born, a lot of the time that genius is crushed. And I think based on our environmental circumstances or whatever that may be. And so I think that a lot of the genius uh, that is, ends up kind of succeeding and seeing its way through into these bigger corporations or making a difference in life, they've had those resources that have allowed them to get to where they are with the exception of a handful of people. But I think that there are so many people in a lot of these developing countries that just don't have those resources and don't even know, like, because they're not given the education, they don't know how to expand the mind in a way that they can truly make a difference. And so exactly as you say, I think once you start to give people these opportunities, I think it is, it's going to be unfathomable the amount of like innovation technology and, and, and support we're going to see uh, amongst kind of the global community. But it brings up a really interesting point, which is 
I think what you mentioned about kind of like the schooling when you start to, a lot of the schooling that we have is very irrelevant. This is kind of a slight pivot, but along the same tangent. Uh, Jordan Peterson in a podcast a while back talked about kind of religion and the church and uh, the church from like, what is the benefit of the church? And he was like, regardless of like whether or not you are religious and you believe in God, there is a benefit to the church, which is the fact that church is, is, it's a community endeavor where people come together and for one day a week, they forget about themselves and they start to think bigger than them. They start to think about this bigger thing that is going on. And what I think so fascinating about Bitcoin, tying Bitcoin into this, is that before I went down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin, of course, I've loved teaching, but still my world is very insular. And I think that what Bitcoin does, and I'm, and I'm sure I can probably speak to a lot of people in the space, is Bitcoin suddenly gets you out of yourself and starts to get you thinking about, man, what, what, how can Bitcoin impact our community? How can Bitcoin impact global humanity? How can, what, what can Bitcoin do in order to kind of create a more prosperous economy? And so I think it's mind-blowing because similar to the church, but not in a religious sense, I want to kind of detract from that religious sense, what it does is it kind of brings together that community and starts to get people thinking bigger than themselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think part of the reason why the church has that power is because people are, are coming together under the umbrella of at least a perceived higher value or principle. And I think that's what's happening with Bitcoin as well. It's, it's kind of, you know, and we'll probably discuss this, but it's a very similar thing just happening in a, in a different form or, or perhaps modified for a different era. But uh, I do, to your point, think it's a very similar phenomenon that's happening. And, and it's great. And some people see that as a negative and uh, some people see that as an extreme positive. And I'm definitely in, in the, the latter category. And I think we, the fiat era in hindsight, I think will be seen as a very egotistical era. I think, you know, fiat fosters that sort of worldview in addition to, you know, the whole um, perhaps decline of organized religion and the, maybe we're in like a kind of interregnum where, you know, people go back to a completely ego dominated worldview and there's nothing sufficiently valuable or no sufficient, no, no ideal that causes people to, to your point, to, to see outside themselves or to see beyond themselves and to humble themselves too, in certain respects. And this, I think, you know, in addition to the fiat era and, you know, possibly there, there's a causal, a causal relationship there as well, um, has exacerbated this thing. And, and I think Bitcoin might actually be bringing us back down or at least causing us to reconsider what we've thrown away in terms of dismissing the religious institutions and I think we're probably in the process of recapitulating a lot, a lot of that and seeing what is what has been rightfully, you know, thrown away. And maybe that's somewhat dramatic language or, you know, done away with in whatever, <laughs> whatever capacity and what is deserving of being brought back and, and uh, reassessed and reintegrated again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One hundred percent. And you know what? It's really fascinating. There's a book that I've heard a few people dismiss now. And it only wanted me, like it only kind of ignited that desire to read it. And that, and that was Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And uh, it's by a guy called David Graeber. And in it, he talks about how pre-money, there was something called the human economy. Post-money, we now have what's called the commercial economy. But what I think is really fascinating is, so to kind of break that down, the human economy was pre-money. And it basically meant that um, exchange was done on a moral and like an honor basis. Like we gave back to the community and we supported the community because it was in our best interest to do so 
because obviously it meant one survival for us, but it also meant survival and prosperity for the community. And so people exchange was more based on, okay, well, I'm gonna give my part back to the community because in the end it all comes full circle. Now, when it comes to the commercial economy, we have what money's done is created kind of the master and the slave. You've always kind of got the, uh, the kind of, how would I describe it? Like you've always kind of got in every single exchange, you are trying to get what's best for you out of the exchange. Like whether it's the monetary side, you want to try and get as much money as possible out of the exchange, whether it is the good side of things, you want to try and get the maximum service or goods out of the exchange. And so what that's done is it's created an interesting dynamic where people talk about, okay, the property rights. Well, property rights is really interesting because what happens if someone owes you money, then in a sense that can lead to slavery and things like that. And so we're actually pushing aside the, the human side of things, kind of the soul, the psyche of the us, and we're looking at us purely as a commodity that kind of, kind of can be traded. And so when it comes to the commercial economy, what's really fascinating is because suddenly everything became uh, a contractual obligation and it removed the honor side of things and the morality side of things, uh, humanity, I think, has trended in a slightly different direction um, than it was heading, obviously, this is pre-money. Now, what I think is fascinating about Bitcoin is Bitcoin, in a sense, brings us back to that human economy with the advantage that we also have money. Because I think as Bitcoin, if we were to, let's just say, like, hypothetically, adopt Bitcoin as a global reserve asset or a, uh, global, fiat, uh, a global reserve currency, if that was the case, then everyone, everyone would have access to this decentralized deflationary money of sorts that over time because there's a fixed supply as productivity increases as our deflationary world meant that goods and services kind of came down in price it would mean that our, our purchasing power would increase so if our purchasing power is increasing uh that means that people can slowly over time work less which gives them more time to spend time with their family and their loved ones and do the things they enjoy which means they can start to give back to the economy again and give back to the community because now it's not just about them. They have those resources to be able to give back. And I think what the fiat system does, unfortunately, through inflation, is it steals that from us. It, we're always just trying to uh, look after ourselves because our money is worth less one day to the next. And so I, th I think it's fascinating when you think about the economy inside in terms of how can we get people back to their roots of actually wanting to create that community and wanting to give back? And I think... Bitcoin on a very high level starts to do that. It, it starts to remove um, the monetary function, even though it is money, it kind of removes the monetary function from things because it gets us back to our roots. Yeah, that's an interesting, um, interesting point. I think, I don't know if it removes the monetary function, but it certainly introduces a different kind mm -hmm. of monetary function there, you know, and I, I explore in, in, in Money Messiah and in some other writing I've been doing recently, like the relationship between how consciousness functions and how markets and money functions and, and the, the corollaries or the similarities between the two, even the kind of the latter being a, an extension of the former. And if that's the case, I mean, you look at what, what is your consciousness like and what are you like when your head is all uh, you know, there's so much noise in your head and you're not focused and you have a lot of anxiety, like what, what kind of behavior does that elicit? And it elicits very, for, you know, broadly speaking, destructive or counterproductive behavior, you know, because when you're anxious, you're not calm, you're not thinking clearly, you're probably not making yourself available to others for either emotional support or, you know, mm -hmm. pr productivity of various kinds or anything. And you're, you're kind of a mess. And 
I think the same is true in markets when they're predicated on a money that has so much uh, misinformation and distortion in the signals that it's sending around. And, it, and as the imbalances that one person who's in charge of that money or who can control the creation of that money, the imbalances created by that type of architecture, i.e. you know, money being stolen from the masses and going to a select few, it puts people in that state of anxiety, that state of deprivation, that state of confusion and noise. And as a result, the behavior reflects that, that the behavior associated with that is very counterproductive, is very destructive in various ways. Alternatively, when you have a money with pristine signals, when, you're, when your consciousness is very clear, when you're calm, when you're focused, when you're properly organized, when your value system, the hierarchy of your values is properly coherent with the rest of the world and the market and other people and perhaps even higher ideals and values like we've alluded to earlier well what happens then well usually you have a healthy productive uh integrated individual who's available emotionally and in other ways to members of their family members of their community etc and i think that's what we'll see with a money that similarly has clarity imbued in its signal right? Or is able to resist the distortion that might sure. be introduced into its signal. And you mm -hmm. get a market full of people that are more available, that are, you know, more, uh, that have less anxiety, that have, that have less deprivation. And as a result, have, are more available both to themselves to consider some of these broader and bigger questions about who they are and what life is and how to orient oneself properly and be made more available to their family and their communities as well. So, um, I, to I, I totally agree with that. And I think we're probably going to see that under a Bitcoin standard. No, and, and you know, I, I think it's always tough on a podcast because when you're trying to articulate, it's easy to kind of put in the wrong words. And when I, totally, say remove, totally. when I say remove the monetary side of things, more what I was meant to say is it redirects our focus to something different, which actually may be of more benefit to the community. So rather than focusing on survival, we're now focusing on something that is bigger than us. So like, how can we help humanity? And you know what, like there was a fascinating uh, Joe Rogan talk the other day and I completely blanked on the guy who was talking. He was basically uh, an astrophysicist and he was talking about uh, the cosmos. And in it, he quotes Carl Sagan and he says, the cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to know itself. And what mm. I thought was really fascinating about this is that if you think about it, well, when he says we are a way for the universe to know ourselves, in other words, what he's saying is like consciousness, our consciousness is a way for the universe to experience itself as we are part of consciousness. But then if we dig down a little deeper, like what is consciousness? Well, con consciousness is a mechanism of survival. It's allowing us to choose our, our path in order to maximize our probability of survival. And now if we want to maximize our probability, probability of survival, just as what you've just highlighted, well, then Bitcoin is a way to maximize the accuracy of the data uh, that we are being given as it gives us clarity through supply and demand, because we're not distorting it through monetary manipulation and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like Bitcoin in a sense is kind of a tool that gives clarity to maximize the human experience in, in uninterrupted data. Yeah, totally agree with that too. You know, and I think um, it could be the case that there's more to consciousness than survival. I mean, is, is our seeming affinity for meaning simply a means of of improving our chances of survival or is there some other reason why we have that capacity i mean who knows i'm, I'm kind of inclined to think 
there is some other reason beyond survival. But to your point, I, I do think Bitcoin, by virtue of the fidelity of the signals that it represents, allows us to, you know, to use Peterson's language, pass through the chaos of reality more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, it means we're needing to give up less of our resources, less of our scarce resources in order to make, in order to transform the chaos into good and useful and meaningful order. And I mean, that seems, you know, that seems very blatant and clear in terms of how Bitcoin will function as a, a superior form of, of economic coordination and value signaling between, you know, members of a contiguous market, let's say. And that's, you know, that's very exciting too, because again, I mean, to me, it's seemingly, or increasingly rather, all this stuff tracks back to meaning and value, you know, because it's one thing to have a market function more efficiently, and that's great, and, and that's a form of progress, but efficient, efficiently in relation to what? What is it we're striving towards ultimately, you know? Uh, is it... It's not just a cooler TV. It's not just a better iPhone. It's not just a cooler rocket ship. At least I don't think that's, you know, I don't think it should be that. I mean, for some people, perhaps that is the definition of progress. But I think consciousness, as you say, is, is more mysterious than that. And our presence here is more meaningful than that. And mm -hmm. the big question is, is like, well, what is it? What are we striving toward? And I, I think it is the case that the things that we ultimately end up elevating in our in the interpersonal space that is markets and culture are the things that get us closer to those domains of greater meaning and value mm -hmm. and religion has the enterprise of religion has probably served that purpose for a long time although it seems very clear that something has gone awry in that domain you know whether it's i don't think it's just because so many religious institutions have become corrupted or have proven themselves to be fallible. I think that's part of it, but I think there's, there's something deeper as well. There's this ongoing evolution of the enterprise of determining what is the thing of greatest meaning and how we can align or, co or cohere with that optimally. All the way back to like 100,000 plus years ago, where the first <clears throat> like human figurines, the first quote unquote art that human you know, hominids had developed were these therianthropic, most likely spiritual, you know, sorts of representation. And then time goes by and we become more capable at representing the contents of our mind and we get more sophisticated representations of these things of greatest meaning. And it seems to me that we're in, again, you know, perhaps interregnum is not the, the right word, but it seems somewhat fitting here where we're in, in this space where our prior representations at potentially served us better than anything we else we could have conceived of because you know at the end of the day why did they persist uh have fallen somewhat uh are, are now lacking you know maybe they've fallen behind some sort of progress that we've made and and things have to be updated once again our representations of things of greatest meaning has to be updated once again to reflect the circumstance of both our internal landscape and the external landscape that is culture and technology and symbolism and ideas and all the rest of it. And, you know, I, I, what we often, what I often talk about now is it seems like Bitcoin is a part of that um, process. And mm -hmm. here we are trying to determine, you know, precisely in what way. When, I, no, and I, th I think that's really, really well said. And I think that it's really interesting because I think it is, it's bringing us back to ourselves in a way that 
I think what technology has done, technology, do not get me wrong, technology has been so beneficial to humanity and has brought so many incredible things. But at the same time, I think technology is a tool for distraction. And, and I think because it's a tool for distraction, it has taken us away from that sitting down and contemplating, just going and wandering through the forest and thinking about these bigger questions, just as you talk about. And in a sense, what technology has done, technology in, in, in collaboration with kind of the human mind is we've now focused on, we've now got spirituality and kind of intuition. And then we have uh, on the other side, we've got science and technology. And, 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 and they, in our society, we've kind of built them as polar opposites, when in reality, they can definitely uh, collaborate together and are one with one another. And I think we've kind of got to get away from this idea that it's either spirituality or it is technology and science. And they're two different things, because I think in the end, there's so much more to life than just growth and trying to help move humanity forward on a uh, technological standpoint. Uh, and I think we've got to tap into that intuition of uh, these things that are bigger than us, because I think um, we, we should be able to, not should be able to, I think that if we listen to what our minds are telling us and what uh, the, the information signals that we're getting outside of traditional technology, uh, I, think it's, I think it's fascinating. And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of like relevant data there that can help us. Totally agree. And I want to ask you a bit more about progress, but yeah, I'll share with you, you know, an anecdote about myself first, because I think, you know, I try to, I obviously think a lot about like, what is the function of technology and what is the, the role of technological pro uh, progress? And, it, you know, in this era, and again, we, you know, it's so hard to think outside your own era. I mean, we are very much products of the culture that we came up in. And even though I would say, broadly speaking, Bitcoiners try to decondition themselves from, you know, the the less desirable aspects of, of culture that might've been imbued in them as, as they develop, it's still impossible to do that completely, nor, nor entirely desirable, right? It's, it's hard to find the sweet spot where you want enough, uh, you know, cultural understanding to maneuver and understand and move through the culture, but also not to be so wrapped up in the, the culture that you're not able to think concepts that are beyond it and that are not, you know, maybe properly or fully or even at all integrated into it. And so this is a constant dance of being like, you know, what, what do I want to let go of and what do I want to, you know, keep inviting in and, and refine my understanding of. And so it's hard to determine, like, to, we, we clearly have a, a, it seems to me, we clearly have a very material orientation in the modern era, you know, and by that, I mean, to, to what we've been discussing, we kind of, we index less and less, you know, the meaningful value, principle, spiritual oriented aspect of things, at least on a cultural basis, not to say that there aren't tons of individuals that have that orientation. And it's more and more focused on the material. So like, you know, building things and innovating and, you know, starships and going to Mars and all that kind of stuff. And I don't have any particular issues with, with any of that, but the issue perhaps is the, as you were just saying, the exclusion of one or the other in either of those camps, right? Rather than the, the, the harmonious integration of, of the best of both. And I think both suffer from, from doing that, right? An over-indexing of the material suffers from the why that, of what you're pursuing, you know, mm -hmm. like what is truly the meaning of just enhancing your material wealth or, techno or technological capacity. And in, and in the former, it's like, yeah, it's great to be, you know, the Godhead, 
but when you come down back to earth, what does your immediate environment look like? And how much is it facilitating more of, of you pursuing that which you believe is most meaningful? And of course, mm -hmm. everyone has to answer that for themselves. I mean, if you want to be a, a monk and meditate, you know, 12 hours a day, then that's your prerogative. But, you know, I, I think about the anecdote I was going to share is like, one of my primary objectives is to, to think clearly, right? It, 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 if you're at all seeking for answers to questions that you don't currently have the answers to, then, you know, a clarity of thought seems to be one of the, the preconditions for improving your odds of, of, of understanding things. And then it becomes like, okay, well, what helps you generate mental clarity? It's like, well, a good sleep does a good workout in the morning, time in nature, sunlight, feet in the sand, body in the water, good food, all of that stuff, you know, contributes to it. Uh, but then you can say well, like, well, what perverts that? Well, if I get, you know, if I'm trying to write something and I'm in like kind of a flow state, well, what detracts from that? Well, hunger can at some point, right? It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're going along, you're writing and then you get hungry. And you're like, your focus shifts from whatever clarity you were operating within to, I really want that steak that's in the fridge, you know? And so it seems like, and I'm basically, I'm making a somewhat convoluted point about technology here, where it's like technology helps us uh, access conveniences that otherwise would pull us away from perhaps what is most meaningful. So in this silly example, I'll, you know, I, I just use that to say, if I can, if I can um, anticipate the degree to which my hunger is going to pull me away from clarity, then I can eat on a, you know, a certain schedule or I can have the food ready. So as soon as I get the inkling, I eat it and I come back to, to clarity. Right. And so technology certainly allows you the, the, the convenience of being able to uh, anticipate and satisfy things that might pull you away from clarity, whether it's deprivation, you don't have a comfortable place to eat, sleep, live, what have you, you don't have the material needs of life. You don't have, you know, clothing, what, whatever, like technology allows you to meet those needs and then push them to the edges once again. And so the kind of question is, is like, where's the balance between rightfully making sure we can push things to the edge so that we can generate as much clarity as possible versus, uh, versus perhaps convincing ourselves or deluding ourselves into thinking that the push to the, the, the means by which we push things to the edge is the ultimate goal, like mm -hmm. more, more pushing to the edge rather than actually the fruits of pushing to the edge, which is a clarity that allows us to orient ourselves or at least pursue things that are of greater meaning, but currently not mm -hmm. fully understood. Well, know, it's, it's interesting because I, I think, yeah, no, hundred percent. And what's, what I, what's really fascinating that's kind of piecing the dots together is money to bringing humans back to their kind of thinking bigger than themselves is kind of like technology to your intuition and your flow state. So like money, when used in its rawest form is in something like Bitcoin that is fixed in supply, allows us to get accurate data signals that helps benefit us as humanity. But it's the same with technology. Technology, when used in its like cleanest form, allows us to be more productive and more efficient. But technology at the same time can be overused which then ends up muddying our capacity to listen to ourselves and get into that flow state. And so I think that what's really interesting is, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. 
I personally have not done ayahuasca. I have a ton of friends that have done ayahuasca. And I've also read a lot of books like Untethered Soul. Um, Untethered Soul, there's like the Gene Keys and uh, what are the other ones? There's, there's a handful of them. But the, the writers and the authors say that when they got into their flow state, the information was not coming from them. The information mm. was more of a download of this thing that is bigger than us. Now, what I think is really fascinating is it depends, like everyone, everyone can be on a different kind of end of the football pitch and say, okay, well, I, I don't believe in spirituality. That's, that's impossible. But the reality is that a lot of these people, they get into these flow states and they're just like, I didn't know this information before and I'm just writing this information is coming out. And I think what's really fascinating is that all of us, to some extent, like when you go to sleep, you could say, well, it could be your subconscious processing, but sometimes you'll wake up with the answers to questions you had before you went to sleep and you don't know where the answer came from. And you, you haven't been thinking about it. Your mind has just been doing this background talk. Whether that is subconscious or whether that is something that's bigger than us, I think everyone would agree that by spending more time with ourselves and getting in touch with our intuition and getting in touch with listening to ourselves and what our body needs, a lot of the time we can start to get answers to these things that are uh, that are bugging us or these things that are bigger than us or get answers to information that I think is fascinating. And, and sometimes when I read pieces by say Gigi or uh, some of the other kind of philosophical breed love, you're just like, how do they come to these ideas? Like it's, it's <laughs> mind blowing at when they piece together these very abstract concepts to create this fluid narrative. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's a, it's a very interesting and potentially unanswerable question, you know, like, mm -hmm. Where do any thoughts come from? You know, and I don't think we have, we don't have many good answers to that. I mean, even, even when you're speaking as in a conversation like this now, I mean, you don't, you're not reading off a script. You don't know exactly what you're going to say. You have an impulse to start speaking. You start speaking and the words come out and they, they kind of make sense and they cohere with the, the, the words that the other person said. And, you know, how does that process take place? And, and of course, you know, the idea of revelation, for example, is very, common throughout um you know religious and, and theological uh traditions and and writing and stuff like that and and what is that but the same process taking place but perhaps what it elicits or what the output is is seemingly more true than you know your average output you know mm -hmm. it seemed you know and, and then you for that reason because it seems so profoundly true or because it, it it because it helps so many other things fit into place you call it revelation you say that it was from you know a higher power because it uh because it helps make so much sense of the world it helps increase the congruence with your perspective and and the world the map and the territory as it were mm -hmm. and um you know it's super super interesting and i i think for whatever reason uh bitcoin and and a pursuit of understanding it is bringing a lot of people back to those sorts of considerations about like, you know, why that might be happening and, and what is happening there. And this is why the, so many people report that, you know, going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is such a fulfilling intellectual journeys because it, it reignites all of this stuff. It makes it relevant and interesting once again. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm in the same boat and it's, it's, it's amazing, but back to the, the, question i want to ask you you know and you've i think you've partially touched on it but how do you define progress i mean what does progress mean to you well you know what this, this you, can, you, you can do that you can do that individually and culturally mm -hmm. socially if you like so 
the first thing that I'd answer is it's such a tough question because it's kind of like morals. Like, I think as an individual, we should always be seeking to like we should be seeking as an individual truth and we should be seeking to what we believe is morally right. Because the problem is we don't know that like there may be some what is morally from a community standpoint, what is right or from a, a civilization standpoint, what is right. But in general, I think we should be seeking as an individual what we believe is morally right. Now, I understand that by saying that you're also going to get people like Hitler, who in his mind, I don't believe people are inherently malicious. I believe people in their own mind believe what they're doing is beneficial to society in some way. And so although I very much disapprove and do not agree with what went down through World War II, I also see that Hitler in his mind was believing he was ridding the world of some form of evil and he was doing what was good. So I, I, I think there's always this com like this confliction internally where it's just like, I believe we should be seeking what is morally right, but that also means you're going to get people that may not be going down the path at which the the common man or the, the community generally agree is right so i think in terms of like what is progress i think one i think that it is a sense of as a community kind of coming to this common goal of what you think is morally right and seeking truth and not necessarily kind of sticking your head in the sand and saying we set these targets such as uh the fed's target of two percent inflation and uh maximum employment and we're just going to stick at it and, and, and keep kind of hammering the nail home. Um, I think that if I was in their form of uh, position, I think, and it's, and it's broad and it's hard to articulate, but I think that progress in a sense is, I would be focusing more on the humanitarian side of things, uh, more on poverty and more on happiness and more of these abstract concepts. But then at the same time, and this is it's definitely a little bit of a ramble and I'm not really answering your question, but at the same time, in a sense, I don't necessarily want to set a target because what happens when you set a target is the fact that you end up attempting to achieve this target in whatever means necessary. And that means that you usually end up down paths that maybe are not so beneficial because in the end you believe that well, we're trying to achieve this target and so in the end we're, the, the target is all that matters and i think that's what we're seeing right now we're trying to achieve uh inflation rate of two percent and we're trying to achieve maximum employment is this necessary when we have an economy that's about to go into recession and we have uh robotics and ai taking over a lot of jobs and people struggling uh like do we need to target maximum employment do we need to target 2% inflation. It doesn't make sense in this environment. And that's where I think sometimes setting progress, uh, setting kind of like project goals, targets is great. But at the same time, it can also be distracting of this bigger course of if you believe in the free market, you believe that through the ebb and flow of supply and demand, we will slowly trend towards this, this, uh, this like inevitable direction. And I, and I think this is then gets into the, well, do we have free will? Do we have... Um, do we have free will? Do we have uh, like choice? Is there fate? Is there like th those kind of things? But it's it's such a hard question to answer, and I definitely did not answer your question very effectively. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's a challenging question, of course. And but I mean, to your initial point about Hitler, and the question is, was like, well, you know, I, I agree with you. Most people don't consider themselves evil; they think they're doing good by the world. But as the saying goes, the, the road to hell is paved is paved, mm -hmm. is paved with good intentions. And but this is why I think the central enterprise of humanity for our entire history has been the question of what is right, 
what what moral alignment, what moral compass should we be using? And that has been the enterprise of theology and philosophy and, you know, all those things and mythology and that kind of stuff. Because as you say, I mean, it's, it's too much of a slippery slope just to rely on yourself and say, well, I, I think I'm being good by doing this. And then you wind up killing millions of people and causing all this pain and suffering in the world. It, it's also why I think the and what I, what I think these, uh, these efforts throughout the millennia have elicited is that the, the pursuit or the, the metric by which you judge progress should not be an outcome. It should be a mode of being. And accepting that a certain mode of being along certain values or principles is, it elicits the optimal outcome, even if you may not think that it is the optimal outcome in the time, or if you can't see how it is in its entirety. So for example, like I think a lot of these pursuits over the ages have come to the conclusion that by, you know, and perhaps it's not fully understood, but something like, you know, speaking truth and something like uh, acting as though every individual is a divine being deserving and worthy of sovereignty and freedom. And, and perhaps the all resolving or all encompassing force that is the notion of love. Like these things seem to have been, you know, at great effort distilled down as these are some of the, the principles that we should pr primarily orient ourselves by so that they elicit action that is the optimal action that we can take. Now, again, maybe sometimes we can't connect all the dots and see how that's all gonna play out, but it seems to be the best option when the alternative is, well, I'm just gonna dream up a conception of what I think the future should be and what I think a good future will be for as many people as possible. And then I'm just gonna roll, you know, roll the clock forward and move towards that and oops, it actually wasn't, you know, as good as I thought it would be, or I didn't, I failed to consider these different, um, you know, these different components of this, or these different, I didn't make all the necessary considerations and I made a mistake. Whereas rather, if you're acting from a place of these principles that have been <clears throat> elicited over time as being, you know, eternal or fundamental, then it seems to me that you, you, give yourself the best chance of not making those massively you know, those those huge mistakes and you and the interesting thing about that that i often bring up and that i you know have been wrestling with myself and in writing and thinking and that kind of stuff is if that is the case and again i do think it is although that you know as i've just articulated there is far too overly simplified um what does that say about the reality that we exist in you know, if like an orientation towards truth, freedom, and love, let's say, and again, that's going to may take some explaining to fully flesh those out. But if that does elicit the best possible outcome, both as an individual and as individuals interacting with others in a society or a culture, does that not say something about something deeper, some deeper coherence with whatever orders and structures the reality that at least we experience with our type of consciousness i think it necessarily does because the reason why it works better than any other approach is because it is cohering with something uh out in the, the world that we engage with and this is why i think in in narrative language and mythological language that's why that structure of reality 
is called something like God, and that God is said to either prefer or be imbued with those principles, because it is kind of, and judges you based on that, because it is the, the territory that you're attempting to map and become as congruent as possible with, and those are the means by which you do so. And so I think our task, um, you know, to answer my own question a bit, is to continuously attempt to gain greater clarity on that territory. And the, the degree to which we do that, that is the highest form of progress, in my opinion. Does that mean more technological development? Almost certainly, because that increases our capacity for representation and for understanding and for clarity of mind. And those are the things that elicit greater progress on that, you know, on mapping that territory. So I think there is definitely a role for technology, but perhaps we've over-indexed it at this point in our civilizational, you know, story. And perhaps under a Bitcoin standard where these things become more clear and there's more balance brought to, you know, markets and fairness and all this stuff, maybe we'll see a shift and, a, a, you know, the, we'll dial down a little bit the just rampant push for technological innovation and it'll be more uh, intentionally channeled toward this emerging understanding of what progress is and why it's so important. Well, and you know what? First off, I just want to say that you basically just like distilled down what I was attempting to in my ramblings. That was absolutely phenomenal. I think that <laughs> that focus on rather than a specific defined goal, uh, I think is so much more important if we focus on uh, values and values of not truth, because truth is can be subjective at times, but truth seeking, as in we're always trying to attain what we believe is true. And the, and the problem is that is that it's always changing. And I think what's really fascinating with religion is most religions, well, when I say most, I'll say a lot of religions talk about compassion. And, and I think what's fascinating about compassion is it's telling you that People make mistakes and people may be wrong, but as long as they're teaching, as long as they're kind of pursuing this idea of truth uh, or truth seeking, then we can have compassion for their mistakes. And I think it's like looking back, let's just say, for instance, your great grandfather is racist or was racist. The thing is, we can blame him from today's ideals of where we do not support racism, we do not support XYZ. But the reality is that when he was growing up, that was a normal endeavor. And so it is unfair for us to uh, critique him by today's values. And so I think we have to have compassion for the environment that he was brought up in. And I think today what our world lacks is a lot of compassion because we're judging everyone under our ideals and we're judging the past through the lens of the future. And I, and I think that it is it's a fallacy because we didn't have that information back then. 100%. You know, and again, we go back to you know, religious wisdom is let, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. And I, I think if we exclusively restrict ourselves to um, learning from or emulating people that are perfect, then we won't ever learn from anyone. And we need to learn from, we have, there's an opportunity to learn from everybody. And if we just close the door on that, because nobody is perfect and therefore nobody is worthy of, of emulation, or at least no aspect of their character or behavior is worthy of emulation or admiration, then again, we, we stunt our, our development hugely. Whereas mm -hmm. if, we can, if we can separate different aspects of people, people's character, realize that nobody is perfect, and then really appreciate the elements of them that are highly refined and, and, and uh, exceptional and worthy of emulation and admiration, and 
forgive or have compassion for the aspects that aren't, well, then we get the double whammy of, of both refining our own capacity for compassion, but also getting the best out of these people. You know, the founding fathers is a, is a common one these days, right? Because, you know, some of them were slave owners and that's deplorable and therefore they're all canceled. Uh, but, you know, and I, like you, I mean, I obviously don't agree with slavery in any capacity, but back then the calculate, you know, the, the, the moral, uh, what, what confronted you morally in that time around that issue was very different than what confronts us today and not excusing it, but we, it, we have to try to empathize with, with the time, like to my comment earlier, like it's, it's very hard to step out of your own culture, but also your own time, extremely <laughs> difficult. Um, but, and, and this is a shame because a lot of those people, you know, I recently read, um, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. I'm reading the Federalist Papers now. Um, I just watched uh, Ken Burns' nine-part uh, Civil War documentary, phenomenal. Like some of these guys were so incredibly, well, they're just exceptionally impressive individuals on certain domains, right? And and they they were so noble and honest and attempting to do good in so many different ways and much of that is worthy of greater understanding and inquiry like i want to i want to study those things so i can try to invite them into my own life and integrate them into the person that i am because they're very rare qualities and i don't you know you don't see them represented very much in the world today at least not to the degree that they were represented in those people in that time but if I was just, if, you know, if I excluded them from any, any form of, you know, uh, ability to learn as a result of their faults, then none of that would be available to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know everyone thinks that the current, you know, cancel culture uh, mob today where anyone who's imperfect gets dismissed is, um, you know, is bullshit and it's peak fiat and all the rest of it. But there is, there, you know, there really is so much amazing stuff to learn from the people that came before us and in so many different domains. And we really should not be so, we should not, and religion falls perfectly into this category, right? Because it's so, it's so easy to dismiss religion in the current era, you know, and it, it's such a facile dismissal. It's like, of course, there's no white bearded man in the sky, you fucking moron, like move on next question. It's like, really like that's the amount of of uh you're going to ascribe that degree of sophistication to the five thousand years of people that came before you like they th that's where they got and they stopped there and they were just like okay that's what i believe and have you ever consulted any of the writings of any of these people in any of these eras because if you did you would understand that their level of, of thinking was way more sophisticated than that and likely way more sophisticated than yours so maybe you should humble yourself a little bit before you go, you know, um, canceling all these people in favor of your own moral and intellectual superiority. And again, this is, this is part of, I think, one of the results of, of dismissing religion outright. Cause you, you know, again, in a few minutes ago in, re in reference to Hitler, you said like, you know, like, well, how, who, what's the moral authority? Like, how are people supposed to be? What are they supposed to follow? And again, for all of its faults, I think the reason why all of this mythological and religious narrative, you know, in the past 5,000 years 
has usually elicited a central figure or a collection of figures to not only show like, quote unquote, what is the structure of reality? Like what, what is God's will, let's say, but what does it look like in human form in terms of behavior? Because that's, that's what allows you to have a framework of a moral dimension to life is like a reference point for saying, okay, like, in, unless I'm going to just devolve into complete moral relativism all the time, and we've seen how much, how well that works, maybe I need a moral reference point in my life to see how well I'm doing in regards to how good I can do. <laughs> and maybe those distillations in the form of, of mythological and, and uh, religious heroes throughout time, and I'm speaking of figures like Jesus Christ and others, of course, um, maybe that's not the best like we can do, but, you know, so, and, and I think 5,000 years from now, we'll probably have different representations of, of these ideas. And again, I think that's the progress of, of, of religious representation generally. So we should expect that. And again, what I think is currently happening with Bitcoin in a certain regard, but punchline is it was probably the best we could do at the time. And it probably, yeah. yeah. And it probably served a, a very, positive function even considering its faults just mm -hmm. like those men you know the founding fathers of the u.s served a very positive function despite their faults and you know welcome to history <laughs> welcome to humanity absolutely 100 and i think that's the thing is we, we got to have compassion for what has come before us and uh we can try and fault something uh that was kind of whether it was created in an ideal in someone's head or whether it truly is something that's bigger than us, we're trying to fault something that's 2,000 years old, 3,000, 4,000 years old. Like they were in a very different time to the time that we are now. And I think that what's really fascinating of kind of what you're talking about is we tend to think of evolution in the physical form. Like our body is slowly through evolution. We're becoming stronger. We're becoming more adaptable. We're, we're able to take on the environment. But morality in a sense is is evolving through what we're just talking about. If morality was a fixed thing where we're born into this world and we're given a rule book and this is morality that was set by God, well, I think we're going to see byproducts of that. Whereas I think, because who's to say this morality is right? Whereas I think what's interesting when you have this open-ended answer of morality, it's not, a, it's not a common thing. It's not a common goal. It's not, a, it's not written in stone, is that morality changes throughout time and morality evolves because we can take from our forefathers, we can take the information at which we found admirable and that we found helped progress humanity. We can take that and push aside the stuff that was not so beneficial. And I think in the end, we slowly trend in this upward path. And of course, we have ups and downs and we go through periods where maybe we adopt traits that at the time we believe were in our best interest, which may prove to be not so much. But in the long run, I think that we trend in this upward path. And it kind of goes back to you brought up an interesting point, which is... Um, I think where some of the flaws in society that we're seeing right now is we're seeing this whole cancel culture or this uh, disinformation campaign. Now, the interest, I read this the other day, and obviously everyone's completely entitled to their own thoughts on what's going on during the pandemic. But we're seeing, say, like um, we're seeing the World uh, Health Organization and we're seeing uh, the FTA come out and they're saying this is what is right. But then if you actually look back at the data, 50% of all drugs that are released to the market end up being recalled. So you're saying we're taking our advice from someone who is wrong 50% of the time. 
So how, like, who's to say that their truth is right? And I think that that comes back to, and I'm not necessarily faulting them, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm just saying, if someone is wrong 50% of the time, why should we be taking advice from this person as to what we can and can't say? And I think that a lot of the time, technology and advancement comes from the fringe, because central powers end up kind of, I, I, I think, ideas and uh, peer acceptance ends up causing central powers to kind of uh, stagnate and ossify over time. And that's where we usually throughout history, we see major advancements always come from the fringe as opposed to from these central bodies. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I think it's also the case, the reason why that happens, as you say, why there's such a willingness to concede authority to these institutions that have been proven wrong and or corrupt time and time and time and time and time again is because as a result of this, uh, uh, you know, decline of religion, there's an authority vacuum. I definitely think that's, that's part of it, you know, because people, let's say religious people, they have a paramount highest authority and anyone that presumes to you know, be a higher authority than that and, and dictate their behavior more than that is, is dismissed or at least heavily scrutinized or criticized, you know, because there is no greater authority than, you know, whatever your particular faith dictates. And, you know, again, that position may be worthy of certain criticisms, but I think one of the ones that it helps, one of the problems that it helps uh, uh, alleviate or, um, or prohibit to a certain degree, prohibits the wrong word, um, but is that you don't, I, maybe it's the case that we're always going to, let me put it this way. I think we all have a hierarchy. Our consciousness functions hierarchically. And for, you know, for every different concept, for values, for, you know, every action we take is a, is a an action among many potential actions. And there's a reason why we take that action. And that reason usually coheres to some hierarchy, conscious or subconscious that's operating within us. And authority, and as we've been discussing, moral authority is no different, I, I don't think. And if, if there's no uh, paramount authority, if there's no default paramount authority for dictating a lot of your behavior, then I think you're it's pretty logical to suggest that you're far more susceptible to other authorities stepping in claiming they're an authority, you having a, you being primed or having a willingness or a desire for an authority because, Hey, the world is uncertain and chaotic and you only know, you know, a, a tiny slice about your particular domain and your particular experiences. So you can't be expected to know about everything all the time and you still have to act in the world and you have to interact with other people in the world. So you've got to defer to presumed authorities on a variety of subjects from time to time. And so, okay, you say you're the authority, you look very authoritarian and everything, you know, the symbols and the stature and the, the power and all this kind of stuff. Okay, you must be the authority and absent a higher authority to keep that authority in check. Maybe I, I believe in that authority or I conform to that authority way more than I otherwise would and way more than I ought to. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a part of what's happening in the world today is that we have an authority vacuum and all of these false authorities or at least, you know, extremely fallible um, authorities and oftentimes corrupt authorities filling that void and leading many, many people astray. Mm -hmm. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And 
you know what, like one of the reasons why I wanted to jump on this, this call and talk to you is kind of very much along the lines of you, you mentioned this and you talked about this in, in the money Messiah, but it's just, I, I would love to hear your story about kind of money Messiah and how, how it came to be, or like what, what spurred on the insight to, to write money Messiah. I mean, a lot of what we've been discussing, you know, that all of this, all of these considerations have become a lot more relevant or salient as a result of Bitcoin. You know, part of the story that I often tell when I tell my backstory is like, I'd always been interested in these subjects and very curious generally, um, but they didn't have that much, they didn't seem to have that much relevance or, or you know, real world application. And once I came to what I thought was a fairly decent understanding of how the world worked, I was kind of dejected. I was like, oh man, this looks really fucked up. You know, I, I, I'm not liking the picture here and I don't really see a way that it's, you can turn it around. And um, when I began to have a better understanding of Bitcoin or at least what I think Bitcoin is and represents and the implications of it, that began to change. I began to think like, oh no, this all this can actually be turned around and then it invites the question like well in what direction you know sure you can change things you know if you if you can change things how ought they to be changed and that invites a lot of you know of the biggest most profound questions and i quote uh jordan peterson a lot in the piece because listening to him and in particular more so than listening to him um reading his book maps of meaning opened up a new angle or a new, uh, you know, method of understanding um, the, the theological enterprise, let's say, or the religious enterprise. And he may be wrong, and my understanding of it may be wrong, but it, it seems it seems right to me currently, and I'll update it when that's no longer the case. Um, but it, and then as we try to understand what Bitcoin is, and again, you know, what it's, what it represents and its meaning, and then I look around and, and I've always been interested in the human aspect of this phenomenon and the cultural aspect. And I, I see how I hear all these stories about how it's changing people so profoundly, like, you know, how people not dissimilar to myself, although in most cases, like even more extreme, because I was never like I went off course for a bit and I probably partied too much. I didn't take care of myself as much, but I, you know, I was never like super depressed and suicidal and like deep into substance abuse and that kind of stuff. But many people have reached out to me to say that that's where they were at for a similar reason. They felt alienated and disconnected and, and uh, despairing about the world and the fate of the world and their role in it. And understanding Bitcoin has reversed that dramatically to the point where now they see how the world could be so much better than it is now. And that, that hope has instilled and reinvigorated in them a sense of purpose and a, and a you know, a a reason to get up in the morning and a reason to try to refine themselves and a reason to try to bring the best of themselves forward. And so, you know, the confluence of all those things just may, you know, makes it a, a, even more of a burning question in my mind, like what is going on here? Like what, why is it having this effect? Why does it seem to be so relevant in so many of these different domains? And um, Money Messiah was just my attempt to, to answer that question. And, and I never intended to write that uh, type of a piece. Uh, I, I, I've told this story before, but like I intended to write a, in like January of 2021, I started the paper or the article saying Bitcoiners are not toxic or, or toxic maximalism is not bad or something like that. 
and it turned into basically suggesting that like you know bitcoin is the second coming of christ in, in in a certain way of understanding it you know so it was by no means intentional but uh as i pursued trying to clarify these thoughts and meaning and all this stuff in my mind and with whatever material i had to work with you know peterson's work a bunch of other philosophical and theological stuff that i'd read over the years and read recently with observing the cultural phenomenon that's happening in bitcoin with observing and hearing all these personal stories that's what got spit out and to your point earlier about like engaging the muse or just you know where do these thoughts come from you know you're referring to rob and and Gigi. like i think they would probably both admit it as well like you do what you can to prime the machine and then you try to clarify like you know as we were saying before get the detritus and the noise out of the way and see what comes through and and that was the case with with money messiah and um you know many some of the topics that we've been discussing here today about the evolution of our representation of the things of of highest meaning and the the function of the ideal in our way of acting and the structure of our value hierarchies and how that determines our behavior and the ways in which we can refine those and how we should be refining them and what it means that if we refine them in a certain way, we actually get a better outcome mm -hmm. and what it means that we now have a, our, our capacity to represent ideas, to externalize the contents of our mind has exploded as a result of the emergence of digital, of the digital world and digital landscapes what does all that mean for the biggest questions that we've always been wrestling with since time immemorial? And so, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but that that's kind of the genesis of the piece. No, and I, I think it's fascinating. And I think you've really spoken to, I was reading some of the comments at the bottom of the piece, and I think you've really ignited a fire in a lot of people. Cause I think a lot of people have this, there are some people that are always going to, it's kind of like the, the innovative curve. You're going to get the, the first early adopters and it's not necessarily through adoption, but more of the, you could liken it to, how would I explain it? So think about like, obviously we've got the adoption curve. Now you've always got kind of that, that middle few of that, those early adopters that are going to step out of their way and go and think bigger than themselves and try and pull together these pieces of information. And I think that piece is one of those pieces where, uh, I've read many, many, as with many others, have read many pieces about Bitcoin, how Bitcoin functions and all this kind of stuff. But the weird thing is, is when you start going down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin, you start asking these bigger questions. And I think that piece is very much one of those pieces that had a pivotal change and it created a pivotal change inside of me where you really start to, man, he's pulling together a lot of these threads that I myself have been thinking about, but I haven't been able to conceptualize them or articulate them. And I think that the energy that you put into that piece is, is phenomenal and it very much comes through in the writing. And I, I, th I think what's really funny and, I, and everyone can take from this what they, what they will and their own beliefs and apply it to uh, the story I'm about to say. But long story short, I always find like the spirituality aspect of things really fascinating. And a while back, I decided I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go see a psychic. Because I think it's always interesting to see what they have to say. And I've, I've never seen a psychic before. And I've heard such amazing stories. And you're just like, man, you want internally to believe that it's real. You want mm -hmm. there to be this thing that's bigger than us. Um, and we're, 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 we're striving for this bigger ideal. And so I went and saw this psychic. And the psychic knew nothing about me because I got her number from a recommendation from a friend and I text this person. So all they knew was my name was Seb and my mobile number. And if you type in online, nothing comes up. 
So I know they know nothing about me. And midway through, she just interrupted me and was just like, and at the, at the time I hadn't explained what I do. I hadn't explained who I am, like my values, what I'm, what I'm trying to do. And midway through the conversation, she just interrupts and she was like, I'm getting a message. You're in a group with five or six other people and you're, you're writing content for the, uh, you're writing content to help educate. Now, what's really interesting is right now, there, there are two energy forces colliding uh, globally right now. And what you were doing is, what I, what I visualize, she's like, she's trying to articulate. She's like, what I visualize from this kind of message is that you are, you're fighting this, 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 and I don't want to say good because I'm not trying to say good or evil, but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm just going to use the term good as a placeholder, but you're fighting this good fight of good energy where you're trying to educate and help uh, inspire people to like take control and empower themselves. And this is going to, it's not an overnight thing. This isn't going to happen quickly. This is going to be a long, slow process. And as long as you keep writing, you're going to be downloading this information, this larger body of information to be able to help uh, move humanity forwards. And People can take of that what they will. But what's really fascinating is I spoke to a friend and my friend, uh, he, he works in the industry as well. And he went and saw a psychic the week before. I had no idea. And he, I started to mention this to him. He was just like, I just spoke to a psychic and they said the exact same thing. And I was just like, what? And I think what's really fascinating is everyone can take what they, uh, what they will from that. But I think that what I think is amazing from the Bitcoin community is that I've never been involved in a community that are, are, are taking the bigger picture and they truly want to do something that is bigger than themselves. They're not in it for themselves a lot of the time. Like, yes, there's a lot of people that are in it for the money, but there's a lot of people such as yourself, such as a lot of the writers, GG, these kind of people that are writing purely because they want to do something better for humanity and they see a, a, a better ideal in the world that we're currently living in. And they're creating a system at which we can opt in for. And I think that that is where I think Bitcoin in the long run is, is hopefully going to succeed purely because I've never seen a collaboration on such a large, large level before. And, and just to give kind of like one short little story, like the other week I spoke to a guy in um, Nigeria and uh, this guy's such a nice guy. And he's just, he reached out to Looking Glass because he wanted education for his community. And at the end of the conversation, we, we had a really good conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he was just like, you know what, like he lives in a rural community, uh, like pretty poverty stricken community in Nigeria. And he's just like, I've never seen whites and blacks come together for something that is bigger than them ever in my lifetime. And this is like, this is bigger than us. This is more important than us. And, and, I, and I think it's true. Like this, I think as long as we are seeking truth and we're, we're trying to have compassion for what has come before us, uh, I think that we can come together with this knowledge base that we have and create a better world and a more prosperous world where we can spend more time with our friends and more time with our family and more time with those that we care about uh, for the betterment of society and community. Amen, brother. Extremely well said. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, to, to tack on to the end of that, because you, you know, time with your friends and your family or community are things that you value and find meaningful. So I would just say, more capacity and ability to pursue that which we value and find meaningful, whatever that ends up being. And I want to know what that is, because I don't think the book is ever closed on that as an individual and, and as a culture. You know, we can always 
bring more joy into our life. We can always experience, you know, the, the joy that exists in the moment, let's say, to be a little bit woo woo. But like there is, there seems to be always more ground we can gain on that. And I think it's while being appreciative and grateful for the ground that we've, the territory that we've mapped already, but I, I totally agree, man. I think it's amazing. And, you know, what you said makes me think of a few things. First of all, on the, the, the psychic stuff, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn on this stuff because on the one hand, I'm a, I'm a big believer that pretty much anything is possible, right? I mean, it's almost like how could we even conceive of something that's not possible in this, you know, as you said at the beginning, we're just made up of stardust that's coalesced in a certain way for some reason. How could it conjure up something that's not possible with the same stardust, you know, in that sort of a way? So I kind of believe everything is possible. It's just a matter of time and capability and technology and who, who the hell knows? But at the same time, like I've always been a huge skeptic of all that kind of stuff because like, I feel like when it's actually put to any like legitimate test of the actual, of the real skill, it like, you know, the, the equivalent of like a double blind placebo controlled study, let's say, uh, would it stand up to that type of scrutiny? And, and, you know, who, who knows what the answer to that question is, but I will say this, you know, uh, it does seem to be the case that spooky stuff is happening around Bitcoin. Now, maybe, you know, I completely concede that that might be me just wanting to have this be more mysterious and meaningful than it really is. And I'm imposing this, like most likely that's the case, but, you know, I've heard stories, uh, lots of them of very kind of serendipitous, synchronous, you know, spooky sorts of things happening as a result of, basically aligning with or having your, you know, consciousness upgraded via whatever it is that Bitcoin represents. And so who the hell knows what's going on there? Uh, there's, there's certainly still lots to be determined uh, in that domain, you know? Well, and um, you know what, I think it's one of those things, and this is where I wanted to kind of preface the story with like people can take from it what they will, because I believe that in the end, our experience is how we interpret this world. And it's kind of like the whole, the map is not the territory. Like we do not see reality as it is because we are interpreting reality through our own emotions and through our own experiences. And so in saying that, I think that when you hear like whether there's legitimacy or not, like think, I'll give the analogy of, let's have a look. I'll give the analogy of, um, I don't know, a lucky pair of socks. If I wear my lucky pair of socks and then I go out and I meet a girl and have an amazing date, and I attribute it to the lucky pair of socks, is there any harm in having this lucky pair of socks? Like in my mind, I've just, man, this is amazing. I've got an amazing life. I've just met this amazing woman. I've had an amazing date because of my lucky pair of socks. It doesn't matter that it's actually, there's no correlation or causation. In the end, it's still, it's just helping me feel more fulfilled in life. And so I think as Nassim Taleb says, he's like, take superstitions, take the positive ones that benefit your life and disregard all the negative ones. And that way you benefit from both sides. You benefit from any superstition uh, or any higher ideal in the positive way and you disregard all the negative stuff. Yeah, fair enough. It, the, the more important point I was going to mention about what you said is, first of all, I, I think, as is so often the case with anything that presumes to, um, well, that, that has this type of effect on people, I think ego is the enemy, right? Unless you are willing to kind of humble yourself to either the greater cause or the greater truth or something greater, then you probably won't 
be able to access, at least not in its fullness, whatever the phenomenon is. And uh, there's a lot of examples of that in Bitcoin, some very recent, I think. But it's so interesting what you said about the guy in Nigeria, because it's so often the case with me too, that you meet someone that you've never met. Maybe you haven't even interacted with them, but you can kind of be like, and of course, this is you know part of the reason why people call Bitcoin a cult and they use it as a pejorative, but it's like, you can go up to somebody and you meet somebody that you never met, like just walking on the beach and Bitcoin comes up and like, you Bitcoin, you Bitcoiner? And they're like, oh, I'm Bitcoiner. It's like, oh shit. And like, you, you already know, you could, you already have a fairly strong, there's a strong probability that you line up on a lot of the most important values, or at least you've both elevated certain values to such a high prominence that, you know, like you've lined everything becomes smooth because on, on the stuff that really matters, you're probably very close. And on all the other differences, I mean, this is actually kind of the point, then your differences can be celebrated rather than be a point of friction. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you line up on what's most important, truth, freedom, sovereignty, love, whatever it is, then all your differences are just interesting. It's like, oh, wow, like you think that because you grew up there and you look like this and you have a preference for that. It becomes stimulating rather than dividing. And, um, and again, I mean, this is part of the reason why we have to attempt to look at Bitcoin in light of such a such phenomena, right? And why it kind of speaks to these deeper levels of meaning, because it is only those deeper levels of meaning and that affect people in such a way and that create that that sort of dynamic between people that have never met. And mm -hmm. I agree, it's 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 incredible. And if you're the the, the you know. The word humble keeps coming back to me so, so often in Bitcoin, not only because, you know, Matt's uh, stay humble stack sats is just the best meme of all time and the best saying of all time. But as is the case with so many things, the, the proper orientation seems to be humbling yourself to a greater truth. And to the degree to which you're able to do that, more more becomes available to you, like more opens up to you, more opportunity, more joy more connections that seems to be like the trick and maybe the 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 game is to humble you know increasingly make sure that you're humbling yourself to the best thing to humble oneself to you know and again we, we wind up in religious territory with these sorts of ideas because that's the whole point you know like in in religious narrative it's you know humble yourself to God, you know, give yourself up completely to God and he will fill your life with, with joy and love and that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that sort of language is replete in those, uh, in religious texts and doctrine and that kind of stuff. And, and again, I th think there's a reason for that, you know, again, you, the specifics of the, uh, any, any in particular, any particular story you may have an aversion to, or may not be the one that's propagated in your culture, but the mechanics of those stories seem very valid and seem to have been developed over millennia of attempting to figure out what the mechanics of value and meaning and morality are. And if, and this is, you know, this is one of the benefits that reading maps of meaning, uh, one of the benefits I derive from reading maps of meaning is being able to see through the superficial layer on top of these mechanics and be able to see the mechanics behind these stories and narratives and wisdom throughout many different traditions, and then be in a better position to not only compare them, but to then take those mechanics, superimpose them onto Bitcoin and be like, hmm, 
it seems to be a very similar thing happening in terms of its mechanics, mm -hmm. but maybe in an even higher fidelity or more pristine or, or more applicable, more broadly applicable, less culturally tainted or determined form. That's interesting. What does that mean? And, you know, we're, we're still figuring it out. 100%. And you know what? Like, one of the biggest things that I've taken away from the whole maps of meaning thing is that a while back, I went deep down the rabbit hole of like communication, how we communicate as individuals. And it's really fascinating when you're communicating with individuals because communication is very much a maps of meaning as well. Like in, in a sense that when we experience the world, I briefly mentioned it previously, when we experience the world, we are not seeing the reality as it is. We are seeing the world through our interpretations. Uh, uh, and more specifically, we're actually seeing the world through our generalizations, our deletions, and our distortions. So generalizations, like in order to save and be more efficient in, in our internal memory and in our brain, we create generalizations of the world. So we say, well, this always happens. So this never happens. These, these are generalizations. And then we have deletions. So when, when someone says something that we don't like, we sometimes block it out and we just kind of turn the other way uh, or we, we don't see reality it is, as it is or we see distortions whereby someone says, oh, uh, no one loves me. And then someone comes up to him and says, you know what? I really love you. And you're just like, oh, they love my shoes. And so we, we distort the reality. And I think that when it comes to uh, Bitcoin, what I think is so fascinating is it's getting us to step back and rather than look at the world through our own generalizations deletions and distortions we're trying to move this stuff aside and we're never going to fully succeed and and is it even beneficial to succeed but it's just we're trying to move this stuff aside to be more objective to try and see the world more as reality as it is in an, in a hope that hey we can have more clarity more information that can help with the prosperity of humanity the prosperity of survival and i, th I think that is so so fascinating yeah, cleansing the doors of perception, as it were, you know, yeah. which is which is also why I think um, there's a lot of psychonauts in Bitcoin, and why those pursuits are are at least intriguing to more and more people who are seeking this type of clarity that you know we've both alluded to in this conversation, because and also this type of meaning, because you know if you're really on that pursuit, it's kind of hard to leave a stone unturned, right? Especially such a compelling one where there's been so much written about them and so much, so many <laughs> fantastic things said about it. You're just gonna be like, ah, eh, no, I don't really want to look under that stone. It's like, what if you're really, you know, pursuing, you know, as great a truth, as great a meaning, as great a value as you can, you know, on this journey, you can't leave a stone like that unturned. You got to go flip that sucker over and see what's underneath mm -hmm. and. And uh, I think it's, you know, done properly. There's a lot to be uh, derived, a lot of value to be derived from, from that stone. And so it's all, you know, this is the whole point, right? It's, there's such a confluence of different modalities and different forms of wisdom and different states of consciousness all coming together around this thing. Bitcoin is somehow through us pulling it all together. Let's Let's consult the wisdom of the founding fathers. Let's consult the wisdom of the ancient Egyptians. Let's consult the wisdom of the tribes, people of the Amazon. Let's consult, you know, the wisdom of our current, you know, scientific state of uh, <laughs> scientific inquiry and knowledge. Let's bring it all together and see if we can perform the exact same process that you were talking about with our, you know, clarity and consciousness, but with things, quote unquote, in the exterior world. And let's see. <laughs> where the fat is and where we can cut that off and what, you know, what remains, what's the, the highest distillation or the one that coheres the most 
to orienting ourselves toward the production of an optimally meaningful and joyous life. I mean, that seems to be the whole game anyways, right? And we're consulting all these things to see how we might do that more effectively. And as far as I can tell, a lot of people in Bitcoin now are just ferociously engaging in that process. You know, of course, people have family and work and everything. So people are doing it to, to differing degrees, but there's just this insatiable curiosity. And it seems like the, even if you think that curiosity is toward understanding Bitcoin, what you end up finding is that as you go down that rabbit hole and attempt to understand Bitcoin, because what it is, is so relevant and affects and has implications in so many different areas, they end up getting pulled into your curiosity and you have to understand them in order to understand Bitcoin. And what you ultimately get is an, a much broader understanding of not everything, but many things, and particularly those things of the greatest significance. And that it's impossible that that doesn't have a transformative effect on you if you're doing it earnestly, genuinely, with the, with the proper requisite humility. Mm -hmm. And that's what seems to be happening. 100%. And I think, yeah, absolutely spot on. And I think it kind of ties back to that whole compassion thing. I think we have to have compassion for people coming into the space and people that are asking questions, because we got to remember that everyone has their own journey that they've been on to end up where they are now. And having compassion allows us to, uh, I, I, th I think, be approachable and inclusive and allow these people to ask questions that allow them to get to this higher self of truth seeking. And I think it can be easy sometimes to get frustrated with the volatility and uh, the community and kind of the FUD and all this kind of stuff. But I think if, if we want Bitcoin to survive, we have to be inclusive and we have to have compassion for those that are on their journey, just as we were on our journey uh, where we ended up now. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, but I think the inclusivity happens by default because mm -hmm. as Bitcoin brings a greater and greater variety of people in from different parts of the world with different beliefs, upbringings, perspectives, experiences, you get diversity by default. So like I've never, I've never been a big one on the whole, like, let's just, first of all, let's get this out of the way. Bitcoiners are the nicest people I've ever met in my life. If you, if you, if they can sense that your pursuit of understanding is genuine, you will get nothing but support and help and everything else you need. If sure. they, if they sniff, you know, a exaggerated ego, if they sniff false intentions, if they sniff disingenuousness, they're going to put pressure on you so that you reveal it so that, you know, we can all see it because a as we've been discussing this whole time, character is the representation of your moral development. And if, if the moral development and all the things that that influences and leads to is really the most important thing, and I think we, we've kind of been making the case that it is here, then under, determining, assessing, bringing to light people's character is a very important part of that process. And as an imperfect person, you should want to be held up to that scrutiny, scrutiny even by people who are as imperfect as you are. Because if you genuinely are here for the refinement of your, your character, then you want that feedback. You can choose to do with it what you will. You can, you can ignore it if you want, although I, don't, I wouldn't recommend that. What I would suggest is that you, you empathize with the people leveling it, you try to consider it, and then you just determine for yourself if it's valid or not, and if it should upgrade or update how you see yourself or how you orient yourself in whatever way. But I think, because, and it's also a presumption that like, 
the, the come in with open arms is always the most attractive thing. I mean, there's many people out there that are, let, let's just say, you know, super skeptical and, you know, a bit of a chip on their shoulder. And if they see someone being too nice and inviting, they're like, no, nah, I don't trust this shit. But if they see people being like, you know, somewhat stern in, in their convictions, uh, then they, they're like, they're attracted to that. So everyone is attracted to different methods of interacting and different ways of appealing to people. So I, I think the best thing to do is recognize that the bigger this gets, the, the surface area, the cultural surface area is going to expand. And that's going to mean that there's more, it's going to appeal to more and more of a, of a diversity of personalities and characters anyways. And as a result of that, the best thing to do is just come in and be yourself. That's it. You know, like if you feel like being somewhat salty, or if you feel like put a, putting someone's feet to the fire, then go for it. Recognize that you're inviting the same treatment of yourself. And if you want that, then more power to you. But again, when it comes back to this thing, like we're all still just determining how best to act in this world. What should we be striving for? How should we be acting? What's the best way to conceive of ourselves so that we're optimally, you know, so that anxiety is reduced and that joy is increased and that relationships are the, the relationships we want are more most easily fostered like and none of us have like the perfect answer to that so we're all just interacting here and trying to figure it out and i'm i i think that uh well i, I just put it this way i I'm, I'm not at all a critic of really any of the interactions that happen in this space because it all just allows us to see more and get more data and understand and, and see people's true nature and character more. And I think that's a good thing. And if we put artificial, and I, I, don't, I don't think you were necessarily suggesting this, but just to take it to a place that some people have suggested, like if we, if we pretty much bring in like the fiat sensibilities into this world and, and impose artificial political correctness or taboos on ways of interacting or inviting people in, then I, I think we lose something far more important than what we gain in, in more rapid adoption or you know, bringing people into the fray or whatever. Because I think what's, what's really valuable here is that people are gaining access to a form of freedom that they've never had access to before. In fact, that no human being has ever had access to before. And that's allowing them to more freely explore their expression and that exploration of their own expression and their own behavior allows them to accelerate their journey towards the behavior that they increasingly determine that they want to be, right? That person that they want to become, that behavior they want to engage in, that moral framework that they want to adopt, that freedom to express accelerates that process. And there's nothing more important than that. And so I don't want to inhibit that expression in any way. For sure. And no, and I think you bring up such a good point. And I think that when it comes to if we want Bitcoin to succeed and we want Bitcoin to pro prosper, it's the same thing. Realistically, everyone has their own skill set and everyone has their own personality. And by bringing these different skills and these different personalities into the space, we only increase the diversity of Bitcoin. And I think that that is phenomenal because it just attracts more people into the space. And I think it's kind of like when people say, oh, well, um, like, how do you need help? And it's just like, why don't you tell me how you can be a value? Because I think we want to use your skill set. And I think 
Bitcoin as the community needs a, such a diverse mix of people in order to help, whether it's through energy, whether it is through hydro, whether it is through uh, creating content, whether it is through uh, finance, whatever it may look like. And I think that staying true to your values, staying true to who you are as an individual and staying true to your skill set, I think is, is, is important for Bitcoin to succeed. Yeah, totally agree. Um, you mentioned the, the psychic story in, in the DMs before we on Twitter, uh, you mentioned some other, were those the experiences you were referring to or were there other sort of interesting experiences that have, that you've had as a result of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole that you wanted to discuss? You know what? It was, I would say it's that experience. There's been a couple others, a little more longer winded, but it's just <laughs> what Bitcoin, what Bitcoin has done is it's, and this is where I think it truly is incredible. And, and I think I was talking, I briefly touched on this with, uh, at the very start where we talked about Jordan Peterson mentions that the church does serve a purpose. You may not believe in religion. You don't have to believe in a God, but what the church does is it, it forces people into a, uh, into a room once a week to think about things that are bigger than themselves. And I think Bitcoin has truly been mind opening and expanding in a sense that it is for me, on an individual level, it has completely changed the way that I approach the world because I recognize that this is so much more than just us. This is, our world is on a path right now. And this is my, my personal perspective. Our world is not on a healthy path right now. And a lot of people are struggling and a lot of people are feeling pain of a lot of the decisions that we've made that have led us up to this point. And I think what Bitcoin has done is given us uh, a new system to opt into, which from the information that we presently have, looks like we can create a very prosperous economy where people can, as you said earlier, they can, they can live up to their ideals and live true to their values, which I think is only going to be more beneficial for the rest of us. And I think that is, that is huge. And so recognizing that it's where like, I quit my job two years ago now, purely just to focus on Bitcoin and, and educate. And even though, yes, it's financially tied up and, uh, and I'm struggling, I realized that what comes around goes around and I'm not in it for the monetary aspect. I'm in it because if we can help humanity prosper, then that's incredible for all of us. And, and I think that I've never, it, it's like an awakening for me. It, it's an awakening in a sense that I realize that we're all just a cog in this bigger wheel. And if we contribute, we can create and we can materialize the world that we want to live in. Uh, we just have to seek truth and stay true to our ideals. Yeah, very well said. I couldn't agree more. You know, and, and again, it, it that behavior invokes a lot of, is you know, it's reflective of a lot of the, the, the actions, the narrative actions that we've seen in religion before, right? This kind of leap of faith. I'm going to devote myself to the, the thing that I see of highest value. And I'm going to have a faith that my doing that and my attempting to in, like investigate myself for the greatest value that I can discover and then apply it or transmute it out into the world in service of this thing as much as I can is going to not only net the, you know, perhaps some of the best good that I can contribute to, but it's also going to return to me what should be returned to me and what I need to be returned to me and what is good to be returned to me in a certain sense. And again, I'm taking, I'm being a little bit dramatic, but again, like I almost not really, because what you just said has been the case with, with so many people that I know, like very good friends and, and people that I've only just met and had these types of conversations with. And 
it begs the question again, you know, again, to, to the, to my investigation of all this, it's like, what could, I mean, you just, you just articulated it a little bit, but I think it's, it goes deeper. Of course, it's like, what could possibly compel that sort of behavior in so many people so consistently and, and, you know, everyone does it in different ways, but you know, most people want to either work in or contribute to Bitcoin in some way, once they start to get it now, whether they're willing to like completely quit their fiat job and just, you know, uh, figure it out in Bitcoin land or whether they, you know, straddle the ladder and, and serve it, you know, until they find something in the former, you know, everyone does it differently, but the punchline is everybody wants to do that. Everybody wants to contribute to this thing in some way. And I mean, it's just amazing that people feel that it's such a force for good in the world and for good in their lives that they are willing to make such a heretofore unheard of, you know, sacrifice or commitment to it as far as, you know, their, their career has progressed or their, or, or they've uh, planned their life in the past, you know, and again, as we said at the beginning, much to be determined in this domain as to why it is people are acting that way. But yeah, you know, I, I think, I think we're on the path, you know, and um, hearing your experiences and motivations certainly contributes to, to that, you know, to both my understanding of that, but also like, how, like the compendium of voices that's doing this thing that just makes it more and more clear that something very unique and very special is happening here. Mm -hmm. No, nope, 100%. Couldn't agree more. I, th I think there's an energy in a, well, from a more spiritual kind of side of things. I think there's an energy and it feels like we're trending in the right direction. I, I, I feel it's good, but maybe that's just completely my mind tricking me into uh, fallacious things. Well, I mean, this kind of, this is to the point we made earlier, right? Like you're right. We may be wrong and it may not turn out the way you want it to now or in th three years from now or five years from now or ever. But to the, I think to the point we made, and this again, faith is intimately wrapped up in, in this way of orienting oneself is, do you believe that the principles or the values that are guiding your behavior in this regard are the best ones that you can use to do so? Mm -hmm. And if, if you do, then you're probably going to be accepting of whatever outcome occurs rather than doing the, the other one that we explored, which is playing out all the, the, the chess moves and determining like, well, this is the, the, the thing I at least currently with my current understanding of myself and the world think is good and desire. And I'm going to orient my behavior simply to moving toward that. And that, that can work sometimes. And, but other times I think it, it fails if not in, in total, but the, when, when arrived at that preconceived place, it's not what one often thinks it is. And it usually causes one to behave in a way that perhaps departs from the way they want to behave or, 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 or a way that's more aligned with the values and principles that they, they would like to imbue their action with, which is why when you take the, the former approach, you've almost already won right off the bat because the goal is aligning behavior with certain values and principles, not the outcome from doing so. And so you're, you're already succeeding every second that you do that. And what nets as a result of that is just gravy almost in a, in a sense, you know, and again, I'm taking certain, I may be a little uh, too woo woo here for some, but I actually think that's the truth. And I, I by no means have 
mastered that ability in my own life because I still get fearful about um, certain things and not not managing them. And I, I guess lack a certain amount of faith at times in in orienting myself in that way. But I think when I kind of think about it logically and rationally and it, it seems true to me. And and I think part of the part of the endeavor is to increasingly increase your capacity for acting in that way. Mm -hmm. No, I, I absolutely spot on. And I think that's just where I think as long as we are truth seeking and we're trying to strive to our best ideals, I think that's all that really matters. It's kind of like, it's like a tattoo. Like as long as if you get a tattoo, because at the time, it meant something to you. And at the time it was shaping who you were as an individual, then you shouldn't regret it in life because that was who you are in that moment. If, if you get, a, if you got it through peer pressure, if you got it through other means, then that is different. That's when you regret it because it wasn't staying true to who you are as an individual. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, so have you got anything else you want to explore or talk about, or should we shut it down? Uh, we, I think we can wrap it up, but I just, yeah, I just want to say, I, I truly, truly value the content you bring to the space. And I, I think you, you've created a lot of insight and opened up the minds of so many people. And so I, I really, really value that. I think, I think your work is phenomenal and I really value just the time that you've spent today wanting to chat. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate those words very much. And um, it's been a, an honor and a pleasure to speak with you as well and hash out some of these ideas. And I'm sure we'll do it again at some point in the future. So uh, we'll keep in touch and be well, and we'll do this again sometime. For sure. Sounds great. Thanks. All right, brother. Take care.